0: The week following creation in Christ. The old has passed. And I don't know what you're thinking. Maybe maybe you haven't considered the question uh, or or the I don't know, the contradiction. Well, which is it? Maybe you're just hoping that when Keith comes back, he can clear things up a little bit. But maybe even if you weren't here, you, you, you might recognize some of the tension that exists when we consider the fact that, well, on the one hand, I believe that I am a new creation in Christ. But there are times I don't feel like that. Or you might be looking on the outside, looking in, and you might be saying, yeah, I I recognize the tension that exists in Christianity. Christians are supposed to be the right, the the moral, the good guys, right? And I know a lot who aren't. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of clarify or bring some um, harmony to our theology. I think a lot of errors can start to creep in if we're not crystal clear on what we mean when sin exists. We believe that the Bible is God's word from beginning to end, Old Testament included. And we don't think that the Bible has contra- uh, contradictions. Even when there appear to be things that don't seem to measure up, we still hold that God is the author of the scriptures and he does not lie and he does not deceive and he is consistent all the way through. And so I want to agree on the one hand that in Christ, I'm speaking in Christ, in Christ, you are a new creation. I'll affirm what Charlie said till my dying day. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your savior, you are a new creation. The old has died. The new has come. You are no longer a slave to sin like we sang in the songs. That's good news. That's true. But it's also true that the scriptures will testify to it and your own experience will testify to it. That sin still remains. That you still sin. You still find lurking within your soul a selfish bent to pride or envy or anger. You still know what you want to do and you don't do it. You still find the draw to do what is wicked and you give in to it. What are you supposed to do with that? I think depending upon your theology, you might go to some wrong places. I think faulty theology uh, can take us to do two things in error as believers. To deny or to, to doubt our salvation or to deny our sin. When we come across the truth that we are a new creation in Christ and we come across the fact that we still sin, sometimes that battle causes us to doubt our salvation. We see Other Christians appearing, at least on the surface, to be having victory over sin. Not struggling at all with sin. We read the scriptures that we're a new creation, that the old is gone, the new has come, and we're thinking, I don't know if it's come yet, and so we doubt whether or not we're actually believers. The other area that I think can, faulty theology, can lead us to deny our sin if If we think that Christians really are good people, if our uh, works and our moral performance is what really grants us salvation in God's eyes, well, then there's benefit in denying our sin. It's easier to swallow. We might deny our sin because we don't want to accept what it might mean to not be saved. And I think that we need to address the fault in our theology if we're going to, as believers, handle our doubts of salvation, and the issue of remaining sin. And and so the way I want to do that is I want to help us look at three different tenses of salvation. If you look in the Bible, or if you're actually following along with the notes that are um, out in the lobby as you come through those double doors, um, the first tense that we're often very familiar with when it comes to salvation is the past tense. You have been saved. I want to put that up on the screen. You have been saved. Done and done, past tense. Ephesians 2.8, you might have it memorized. For by grace, you have been saved. You have been saved. You have been saved through faith. That's a a verse that we often memorize, and it's true, and it's helpful for us to to remember. You have been saved. Done. It's in the past. But the Bible also speaks of us being saved in the present tense. So 1 Corinthians 1.18 might give us the indication that salvation is also a progressive thing not just something that was done in the past but something that's presently going when it says for the word of god is cross uh the word of the cross is folly it's foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved you are being saved to us who are being saved it is the power of god progressively being saved and then in the final phase you can probably guess the tense that i'll use You will be saved. You will be saved in the future. Romans 5, 9 gives us the indication, since therefore we have now been justified, okay, so that's the past, we have now been justified, so much more so, shall we be saved in the future by him from the wrath of God? You have been saved. You are being saved. You will one day be saved. This is how the Bible talks about the nature of our salvation. And the nature of our salvation links up with certain biblical terms that we've um, sometimes we'll use around here: justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification says this: justification says that Jesus has saved you. Past tense. He has saved you from the penalty of sin. We sing about that. We know it. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin in full, all of your sin. All of your sin, all of your sin was dealt with on the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus redeemed us on the cross. He forgave all of our sins. He took our sin, put it on himself, and it was nailed to the cross. So we are clean. We are forgiven. And not only that, he has granted to us his righteousness. By going to the cross, Jesus earned a perfect Righteousness that when we put our faith in him is applied to us so that we stand before God today. We stand before God today, both forgiven and accepted. Our sins have been washed away, and a righteousness has been given to us. Now, it's not our righteousness. Jesus gave us his righteousness, a, a pure righteousness, a more holy, a blemish-free righteousness, and we stand before God justified. It's good news. It's one thing to know it. It's another to believe it. Justification is different than the next term. Next term, sanctification. Sanctification says this. Sanctification says that Jesus is saving you. Jesus is saving you. Present progressive, if you're a grammar Nazi. Present progressive, saving us from the power of sin. So I want to say, on the one hand, on the cross, Jesus broke the bonds of sin to us. Sin no longer has the power to condemn us. Christians will no longer be damned because of their sins. The power over sin is a progressive. That we are growing in victory over sin. As God grants us the ability to turn from sin, repent, and turn towards righteousness. We are slowly being transformed by God from the inside out. Slowly being shaped. Slowly being molded. The process that God began when you came to faith is a process of maturing us through to completion, and he guarantees it will happen. You will grow more and more and more into the holy image of God. So yes, on one hand, justification says you are holy. Now, positionally in front of God, you are holy. Sanctification says you are being made holy. You're not there yet. You've not obtained perfect righteousness yet. You are being made holy. Now, one day, our position before God is holy and our current condition will one day match each other. But until that day, we are being made more and more. And so Martin Luther uses the the phrase simul justus et pect. Et it's Latin, I think, it, but it means simultaneously holy and sinner until the day when we are glorified. Glorification says that Jesus will save us one day from the presence of sin. The penalty's been dealt with. The power is being diminished. The presence will one day be sin-free. That's a, a joy that we have as believers, something we look forward to. The day when sin is no longer a problem. Jesus dealt the definitive blow, and it is being destroyed, and one day every tear will be wiped away. All of the corruption that we see, both in our flesh and in the world, will be defeated by Christ and washed away. When we die, we will rise and we will see before us an eternal weight of glory waiting upon us. On that day, in the future, our condition and our position before God will both be holy. Now, I go through this whole theological training idea here because I think that one of the reasons that we might either doubt our salvation or deny our sin is we don't grasp this. Now, you might know these terms because you've heard them over and over again, but I'm saying, do you know it or do you believe it? So with the issue of ongoing sin, I want to give two alternatives. One, I want to say, if you have ongoing sin in your life, A question that I think is possible and should maybe be asked is maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've been believing the lie that your acceptance before God is based on your performance. And you have been trying and trying and trying to get your life together and failing and failing and failing and and then wondering, I don't even know if I'm a believer. Well, you might not be. And God might be this morning convicting you constantly of your sin, showing you your weakness, showing you your inability because he wants you to stop trying to be a Christian and he wants you to believe that you are. God wants you to believe the truth that your acceptance before God is something that is received by grace and not achieved through works. And so maybe one of the reasons that you are failing to battle your ongoing sin and not finding victory is because you don't have the power. You have not been made into a new creature. The old hasn't gone. The new hasn't come yet. In the story of David and Goliath, you are not David. Jesus is David. You're the Israelite on the sideline, the one who's too weak, too feeble to defeat the giant. Sin is too big, too dark, too deep. And so God in this moment might be asking you this question. Maybe not. Maybe you aren't a Christian. He's inviting you this morning to, for the first time, stop trying and start believing. That's true for maybe some people in here. For others in here, the other conclusion is this. Maybe God isn't done with you yet. When you see ongoing sin in your life, and you're wondering, should I doubt my salvation or should I deny my sin? Maybe we need to consider the fact that God might not be done with us yet. That the process of being made holy is a process that takes time. And so this morning, I want to invite us as a church to commit this idea that God's not done with us yet. Another way that I could say it might be like this For believers, and I mean this for believers and for believers only, though. Sin no longer reigns, it remains. And all of its destructive effects, less damnation. We cannot be condemned for our sin, but sin can still hurt, it still hurts us. Sin still hurts our friends, our family, still hurts the church, still hurts, still hurts God. The nature of sin that it destroys still has an effect. And so if sin remains, even if it no longer reigns, I think that we ought to battle it. And I want to do that as a church this morning. So did you pray with me as I uh, take us to a text um, to help us in our battle against sin? Father God, as we open your word and, and, and look to how you describe sin, I pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes to its wickedness, to its destructive abilities, to its subtle evil. God, put a sour taste in our mouth when we consider sin. And help us to see and savor the beauty of Christ. Lord, I pray that this morning would help us as a church to become more and more righteous. To to put our trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And put our trust that you are working in us to make us new again. To make us more and more like Christ. So Lord, do that. Have your spirit work as a body, that we might become, as a church, more righteous, more mature, more loving. pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 4. Now, that was a text that I was in just a few weeks ago when I was preaching on Cain and Abel. Uh, but if you were there, you might have um, noted the fact that I didn't cover the whole section. In fact, I left out... Uh, <laughs> really a key interaction. I didn't say much at all about God's interaction with Cain and, and God's words to Cain when he started talking about it. I focused primarily on Cain's heart. It said the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, and I considered all of the ways that Cain's heart uh, was being exposed as in needing help. But I didn't spend much time in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I'll read 6 and 7, uh, but it's really just 7 that I want to pay attention to this morning. So let's read it together. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? And why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. These are my words that I want to say to Keystone. Watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. Watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. And God says to Cain, but you must subdue it and be its master. I love that God uses a metaphor or an illustration to help Cain understand his situation. He says, Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door eager to control you, that God would use an illustration. I I, I picture a tiger. I picture a crouching tiger, hidden dragon, actually. Uh, But you can picture some sort of beast. God is using some sort of beast to describe this beast waiting, hiding outside your door, ready to pounce. And God says, watch out, Cain. You need to handle this thing. And if we're, as a church, going to battle against the remaining sin in our lives, I think it's helpful for us to understand a little bit of the nature of sin and what we can do about it. So I'm going to use three headings, um, sin hides, sin grows, sin waits. We'll talk about what it does and what we might be able to do because of it. So let's dig right in. The fact that sin hides. You might be asking yourself, okay, Brendan, well, how does sin hide? I understand how a cat might hide. I've got a picture of a tiger camouflaged in the grass. I don't see that. It's hunkered down, ready to pounce. But I need you to to help me understand how sin hides in my life. I mean, because sin is not an actual tiger. So let's paint a picture for it. How does sin hide in your life? I'm going to give three possibilities. There are probably more. But sin hides when it is excused. Sin hides in our lives when we excuse it. And so we might be able to come up with actually pretty names for ugly sins and so we excuse it well it's not actually a problem i find that i'm probably pretty good at justifying sinful behavior i can come up with some good reason why it's not as bad as someone else is saying and i can excuse the accusation and my sin will remain hidden you might say something well i'm not stingy brandon i'm a good businessman i'm not a gossip brandon i am not a gossip. I am really concerned about so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. You know what? I, I, I'm not. And then fill in the blank. Fill in the blank of kinds of behaviors that you've called good things that are actually bad things. Those are probably hidden sins. And our culture is pumping out a loud voice that can take sin and actually call it a good name, celebrate it as something that should be lifted up and exalted. It's not actually sin. It's love. It's not actually sin, it's progress. It's not actually sin, it's freedom. And one of the ways that sin hides is that we give it a good name. And we might even pursue it because we've given it a false name. The other way that I, uh, another way that I think sin hides is that sin is diminished. One of the ways that I think we cannot see our sin for what it is is that we compare ourselves to others. And compared to other people, my sin isn't really that bad. I mean, we've got a long list of big sins, a list of th- sins that you, that you wouldn't commit, and they belong to other people. And comparatively speaking, your sin, not that big of a deal. And so it remains hidden. You don't even think about the little sins because you're only fixated on other people's big sins. Sin hides when it's excused or diminished, I think even when it's pruned. And this one's sort of a stretch for us and I want us to, to think Sin hides when it's pruned. When we go and start battling sin, you might find that it's a little like playing whack-a-mole. Like you, you, you beat one down and then another pops up. You, you beat another one down and like, then all of a sudden, they're, they're, and you're just whacking lots of different m- moles or maybe it, it's springtime. It's like, it's like weeds. My backyard is full of weeds and every week I go and I mow my weeds. <laughs> And you know what happens the next week? The weeds grow back up again. And so you can hack away at sin. Cut, cut even certain behaviors out of your life. But until you dig down deep to expose the roots of your sin, you might not see the appearance visibly, but beneath the surface, there's a sin underneath the sin. I was talking with a college uh, coach this week, and he was describing to me the drinking culture on campus and he was saying how difficult it is for Christians at his school to resist the temptation to get drunk on the weekends they want to fit in with their friends they want to be included they want to even or at least the athletes especially because they want to be part of the team they want to ex- express some solidarity brotherhood sisterhood and so they choose to kind of leave their Christianity on the shelf for these years and hope to come back to it later and I thought that's interesting It's interesting because the reason that college student is drinking and getting drunk is not the same reason that an alcoholic is drinking and getting drunk. One might drink to get included. One might drink to forget. And I think that it's interesting that both of them might be able to cut out the drinking at some point in their life. But unless they address the sin at the root that was bringing about the same behavior but different roots, we might not be able to battle sin. Because sin hides, and I think, frankly, because maybe the the most dangerous enemy that you have is the one that you can't see. The the enemy you can't see is sometimes said to inflict the most damage. It's the snake as I'm walking, fishing, that I can't see that honestly is scarier than the one that I can. Or at least the one that can do more damage. I see a snake, I run from it, lickety-split. If I don't see a snake, sometimes it's too late. And so sin hides. What are we going to do about it? Well, if we're going to battle the sin that hides, we need to expose the sin, expose the sin and the hope. We need to expose the sin and the hope. And I'm going to give us two ways that we can do that. One, gather around yourself other warriors, other people who can see what you cannot see. I find that sin can be very difficult for us to identify when it's hidden because we're so good at justifying ourselves and it's not until you bring in another set of eyes who are able to look at who you are that they can pinpoint what's actually going on in your heart and so it might be a friend it might be a small group but I would invite you to bring other people into your life who you trust and who you can be accountable to but frankly maybe even more importantly who you can be authentic with who you feel free to be able to c- confess and expose what's really going on in your heart. And I understand that that idea is a scary one because it's going to be embarrassing maybe for you to let someone else know what's going on in your heart and mind. And it might be scary because you're not sure if they're going to reject you or talk poorly about you. It's a vulnerable spot to be able to expose your sin in front of someone else. But I think the only way that we can have the darkness lose its power is if we can expose it to light. And so one of the ways that I want us to um, do that is to have us bring warriors around. The other thing that I think would be important for us, to gain victories, not just expose the sin, but to provide the hope. And my encouragement my in, my for us as a church is, I want us to tell our story. Now, I was at Bethany Christian Services this past Uh, two Fridays ago. And in their conference room, they have these trees. Uh, These trees represent uh, each year and the leaves on the trees represent different children who have been adopted. It's a cool thing in that space. But I'll tell you, as cool as it was, it wasn't powerful for me. It wasn't powerful until I looked and saw one of the names on there and recognized it. (laughs) And then another. There are two, at least two Keystoners on that tree. And as soon as I saw their names, what gave the tree the power to move me was that I knew the story. Now, when I walked in, I knew the truth that those trees represented families who have adopted kids and kids that now have a new home, but it wasn't powerful. It didn't move me. I knew it, but I didn't feel it. Sometimes I think what we need in the Christian walk is not just more theology, but more examples and stories of how God has personally brought grace and healing into our lives. And I want us as a church to work alongside each other, not just to expose sin, but to bring hope to it. And I understand that just as it's hard for someone to expose their sin, sometimes it's hard for you to tell your story because it's going to mean that you show off your weakness. You're going to be embarrassed you, you might face rejection as well from that person. It, it will hurt to some degree, but I would say, please tell your story of God's grace. God has been abundantly good to you. Share that hope with someone. I think it's unloving if you keep God's grace hidden from others. Tell your story. Second part, sin not just only hides, but it grows. And I was growing up, uh, my family didn't have any pets. Uh, I'm allergic, and so my parents are kind and gracious, and they uh, didn't let us have any pets. My sisters were not necessarily as kind or gracious. Um, so they took every opportunity to welcome any stray cat that we could probably find. Um, we had Piccolo and Munchkin and uh, Maximus, and um, so they, they came to us as kittens, and my sisters loved these cats and fed these cats and built a house for these cats, and, and, and the cats stayed. And, and they... They lived outside, but every once in a while when the, when the door was open, they would come wandering in, come chase the food, and then they'd walk out. Um, and sometimes my sisters would kind of like break the rules a little bit by playing with the cats just, just inside the door, just in the vestibule area. And whatever, I, I managed. I'm a big guy. I can handle myself with just a little allergies. <coughs> How is that different if it's not a kitten but a tiger? if it's not a kitten that's outside our door, but a tiger that's outside our door, well, then it changes. You might feed a cat, tame a cat, care for a cat. And I know that there are people who will feed tigers, care for tigers, tame tigers, but let's not be surprised when that tiger ends up eating your face. There are TV shows about when animals attack. It might be tamed, but it's still a wild animal. And sin is like that in some ways. Uh, the New Testament in James uh, 1, 14, 15 describes how sin has an idea of growing. Uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin grows. You know this. You know that there are sins that have started in your life that have progressively gotten worse and worse and worse. We tend to only picture the the big sins. Uh, A a husband or a wife cheating on their spouse, a, a man or a woman embezzling money from the firm, murder, suicide, sexual abuse. I'll tell you, none of them started there. Adultery didn't start with adultery. Adultery started with dozens and dozens and dozens of stories, decisions that progressively over time led us to the point where we would do that. Uh, Christopher Browning wrote a book uh, detailing uh, the Reserve Police Battalion 101 uh, and their impact in the um, final solution in Poland. And he chronicles the fact that these men were ordinary men. They were ordinary policemen who were upright men. They weren't brainwashed by the Nazi war machine. They weren't kids who were brainwashed and then led into it. They were ordinary men who, he says, just made small, incremental bad decisions. Things that it felt wrong, but it didn't feel that wrong, and so they moved an inch, and they moved an inch, and they moved an inch. And they moved an inch, and before they knew it, they were responsible for exterminating the Jews, for putting a gun to their head and shooting a mother and her daughter. How did we get there? Slowly, steadily, sin grows. It's like your kids. You look at your kid day to day, they don't change one bit. You look at old pictures, you're like, oh my gosh, remember when they were so little? When, when we allow sin to linger in our lives, our hearts become more and more callous to it that we're not as sensitive to the small sins. And so we're more willing to allow it to be a part of our lives. It's kind of like farm feet. Do you know what I mean by farm feet? Farm feet? No? Well, if you work on a farm, um, you go barefoot a lot, I guess. Uh, I don't live on a farm. And so whenever I walk across a gravel road, uh, I am just gingerly walking because my feet are sensitive and um, I understand some people say, oh, big man, you're a big little girl, you're weak, you got weak feet. Hey, <laughs> farm feet knows no gender because I've seen little girls uh, running across gravel and I think to myself, "Hmm, it has nothing to do with weakness and has everything to do with how much you are willing to tolerate and become callous to things. And as a church, I don't want us to become callous towards sin. God does not want our hearts to grow callous to sin. What are we going to do about it? If we're going to battle sin that grows, we need to kill it, not tame it. We need to kill it, not tame it. The New Testament uh, uses the language, put to death, therefore. It's violent, Put to death, therefore, what is a part of your sinful nature. Make no provision for the flesh. One of the reasons that it grows is because we feed it. And so if we're going to kill it, I say we starve it. There are little sins in your life that make it easier for you to progress to the next stage bit by bit. One of the best ways that we can tackle sin in our lives is to address even the small sins. In my house, I follow uh, a a theory called the broken windows theory. When it comes to a clean kitchen and a clean bedroom, uh, Mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani in the 1980s was trying to eradicate violent crime in New York City, and he did it in a unique way by addressing smaller crimes with the idea like this. If you come into a neighborhood and you see one broken window, and people in that neighborhood start to tolerate that one broken window, it's not long before maybe another window gets broken. Because, I mean, if one's broken, what's another one? And if two windows are broken, what's a little graffiti? And if there's a little graffiti, what's if there's a little drug deal? And if there's a little drug deal, what's a little prostitution? If there's not a little prostitution, why not a little crime? And, and so he said maybe one of the ways that we can tackle big sins, big crimes, is to go after smaller crimes. I do the same thing in my house. And honestly, it's not without its flaws, but there's, there's something true about this. Uh, in my sink, if I put one dish in there, how much easier is it for me to put a second one? And if I put two in, how much easier for my roommates to put one in? And if the sink is full, what's it matter if the countertop's messy or the floor's messy? And if the kitchen's messy, what's it mind if the living room's messy? And so I have to be diligent in addressing the small things if I want to avoid a messy kitchen. And so first dish that goes in, I wash that sucker. When I do my laundry, I fold it right away and put it away. Otherwise, if I just fold it and leave it in the hamper... I'm going to work out of that hamper for the next two weeks. I have to address the small sins. My encouragement for you is not to try to tame sin, but to kill it by starving it. Last part, sin waits. The passage there, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control. One of the difficulties about fighting sin is that you don't always see the consequences of sin immediately, right? Right? You don't always see the effects of sin. It's like if you had a diet of cotton candy and milkshakes. Your teeth wouldn't rot out immediately. You wouldn't immediately get diabetes. You wouldn't immediately get heart disease. But we'd be silly to think that it wasn't responsible when we do come across those diseases, that that had some effect. So it is with sin. Sin is going to bring a consequence, and it might not be today or tomorrow or even a week. But, and, and frankly, even if you can't see it, others might. You might be blind to sin's effect in your life, but others might be noticing. Sin is waiting, and so if we're going to battle sin that waits, I want to say, let's kill it and let's kill it now, while you have the opportunity, while you have the conviction. While the Spirit of God is working on you, drawing to mind things that He wants you to put to death, start now. And it's tempting to say, I'll wait until... And then you fill in the blank at some later point. I'll wait to deal with my fear of man until I leave college. I will wait to deal with my sin of pornography or masturbation until I get married. I'll wait to deal with my sin of greed when I have enough. I'll deal with my anger when... fill in the blank. It's tempting to do that. And I want to say, don't wait. In the 1960s, firefighters and scientists started to have a revolutionary uh, uh, change in the way that they looked at fires, forest fires, wildfires. There was a mentality that all fires should be put out immediately, just extinguished right away. And so when a fire would come, they would rally troops and put it out immediately. And what they started to see is that sometimes fires can be a good thing. And some of the raging wildfires that we see today are raging uncontrollably because for decades and decades and decades, we've not allowed the forests to burn. And during that time, they've been gathering fuel, dead limbs, small branches, stuff that when... A, a spark is set to it. It blazes with a heat that not just destroys the trees, but even the soil. These kinds of forests that don't burn off the small stuff, when they do catch fire, destroy. I, I've got a picture here. There's a uh, the, the forest on the left is a different forest than the one on the right. One had been allowed to burn off the, the undergrowth, and, and then when a fire came, it didn't destroy everything. The one on the right is a forest that had for a long time gone without a fire. And during that time, it gathered fuel and gathered fuel and gathered fuel and gathered fuel. And then when the light, the spark was lit, it not just destroyed the trees, but it destroyed the ground. Sometimes we're so concerned about avoiding the big disaster that we're not willing to allow certain things in our lives to burn off so we wait, hoping no one sees, hoping no one finds out and sin waits and waits and waits if we're going to battle sin I think the thing that we need most is to be okay with appearing weak the good news is that the gospel gives us the ability to be weak To expose our sin is going to be embarrassing. You're going to have to be okay with looking weak. To tell your story, you might have to be weak. To choose to kill rather than tame your sin means that you're not strong enough to tame it and you're going to appear weak. To start now might mean that you have to be weak. And if we're going to battle sin, we need to be weak so that we can be strong. So that we can address the sin that hides, the sin that grows, the sin that waits. It's good news that Jesus came to us while we were weak. It's good news that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's good news because there is no condemnation for us. I'm inviting us back to believe the way to tackle sin in our lives is to come back to the gospel. That we are saved not by works, but by grace. Richard Lovelace, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, gives an um, explanation or a, connects some dots for us. He says this, only a small fraction, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that they consciously see little need for justification. Although below the surface of their lives, they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine. But in their day-to-day life, day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. Much of what we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in the church, uh, in church people, is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. And we won't grow as a church until we know that it's Christ who is growing in us and not our own moral performance. We pray, Father God, we want to be like Christ. Lord, we put our faith that Jesus has saved us and we put our faith in the fact that one day Jesus will come again and save us, deliver us from the final judgment. And Lord, we put our hope that you are God making good on your promise to mature us more and more like Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to gain victory over sin, that we would make war against the sin, that though it no longer reigns, it remains and it destroys things. Lord, we want to be a reflection of your character and nature to the world and there is a glaring... Whole of sin that is deterring others from you. Lord, heal us. Remind us of the glory of the grace of Jesus that would free us to expose sin and we might get help and might hear stories of hope and that you would bring hope and healing to us as a church and that we would experience not just victory over sin but we would experience a body that is glowing with the radiance of Christ.